back to the Neil Haley Show and also the Media Giant Effect. I'm excited to welcome the program Cannon from American Ninja Warrior Season 9. Cannon, thanks for stopping by, man. How are you? Oh, I'm doing good. How are you doing, Neil? Fantastic. Tell us specifically your experience in Season 9, getting to compete American Ninja Warrior in Season 9. Oh, man. Unreal. I mean, it's just so surreal. There's so much lights and cameras and people, and it's all really fast-paced. Um, but it was... It was such an amazing experience. Um, I met yeah. so many good people there. I actually ended up starting my own ninja gym after going through that whole experience. Oh, fantastic. We'll definitely have to have you back on for a longer time. But you're <laughs> here at uh, Simkovich Concussion Institute. Tell us your experience seeing Dr. Charles and the staff there. Oh my gosh, like, where do I, where do I start? Um, I didn't think that anything like this was real. Um, I've done a lot of treatments for concussions and TBIs and stuff of that nature. Um, the first consult I had with the doctor was just, it was so refreshing. He was just very real about how the body works and how the mind works. I'm, I'm a massage therapist as well. So I understand some anatomy and physiology and stuff. And he started explaining to me, I was like, this will work. This is amazing. This is what I've been looking for. Uh, for over 10 years, I've been living with a TBI. I fractured my skull. Um, it was pretty, it was pretty, pretty bad. Um, but after I met these guys and everyone in the office, they're just the most genuine, kind, friendly people you can ever come to. I mean, this whole experience is kind of uncomfortable. You're, you're going to something that you might, you don't know is going to work, you know, and you already kind of feel weird anyway about new situations. And when you come here, you just feel like you're at home. I mean, they're like family and they treat you like family. It's just, it's, it's an unreal experience. Wow. And so what, what, what progress have you shown from what you were going through before? Oh gosh. So let's start with the easy one. Um, so I had no taste and smell. I lost that. It's been over 10 years. Um, you know, doctor said if it didn't come back within two years, there's just no chance. Um, so 10 years of no taste and smell. I think the first thing I smelled was coffee on the airplane when I was flying back to Wyoming. And it, it was just unreal. Um, then we were going home. We drove past a farm and I smelled cow poop. And it was awesome. <laughs> Not because it smelled good, but I could smell it. I was like, mom, what's that awful smell? And I'm just like, oh, but I could smell it. I don't even care. It was just, it was unreal. I mean, there was that. Um, a lot of the things that go with TBIs and concussions, a lot of emotional stuff, uh, lack of energy, really just trying to be happy. Um, you know, you get the anxiety, the depression, a lot of things, um, and they all happen at once. And I, I, it's all gone. I mean, I just have energy. I'm sparky. I don't have anxiety. I could go out and do stuff. I could go to grocery stores and not feel like the noises and the beeping and all that stuff. It's just, oh. too I'm just, I can feel tremendous. That's amazing. And where's your gym? It's in Wyoming. Yes. Yep. It, we did close down after COVID though, unfortunately. Oh, okay. Are yeah, you looking COVID to get it back? Out, <laughs> Are you looking to get it back again? Um, I'm kind of dabbling with it. I, I don't know. It, it was kind of a painful thing. And after COVID and uh, it was a lot of work. I, I started and ran it by myself for three years and then I brought on some partners and then COVID hit and it just, it was a, it was a big hit. <laughs> so you think I, if you recover, you know, will you ever compete in American Ninja Warrior again? If you I would love to. Yeah, actually. <laughs> okay. Well, it's great to hear from you. Is there social media people can follow you and stuff? Where, find you. Where can they find you? Uh, 307 Ninja on Instagram. All right. We appreciate it, Cannon. Thanks again, man.
Yeah, thank you, Neil. All right. You're listening and watching The Neil Haley Show, and we'll be back into the special simulcast of The Neil Haley Show and growing older with enthusiasm with our host, Dr. Ron Kaiser. Dr. Ron, how are you? Thanks for stopping by. great. How are you? I'm excited about our guest, and I'm going to introduce him because he's a good friend of mine, and he's uh, he's doing some tremendous work, and he's going to really focus on older adults and that, ha- that had brain issues, and he has a way that he's had such great results with his clients. Dr. Charles Simpkovich of Simpkovich Concussion Institute. Dr. Charles, thanks for stopping by. How are you? I'm good. How, how's everybody? Fantastic. So I will jump with the first question, Dr. Ron. What it, When you're working with an older population, what kinds of brain deterioration do you see when people grow older? Are you there? Yeah, Did you hear me? Dr. Charles. That's for Dr. Charles, right? Yeah. Dr. Charles, that's a question for you. That was for Dr. Ron. Yeah. yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. Well, um, most of my patients are, are from head trauma. And then the the issue there is the waste removal system of the brain called the glymphatic system. Uh, the glymphatic system is a process where the cerebrospinal fluid flows into the subarachnoid space and it... Uh, goes through water channels called aquaporin 4 it gets pushed in the brain where the brain the glymphatic system cleans waste products such as tau proteins which are what causes cte or chronic traumatic encephalopathy and beta amyloid proteins which is what causes dementia and research by dr nettergaard in rochester new york has uh, identified the glymphatic system and it's also shown that concussions slow the glymphatic system function down so by uh, early intervention with people who have had head trauma a lot of times you make sure that the waste removal system is working properly when you're rehabbing somebody from head trauma so that uh, so that the the dementia component of beta amyloids don't become an issue as you age now we've had uh, there's such a thing as damage we've had some dementia patients come in here where there's there's damage uh, and and it, it, there's such a thing as damage and and we can't reverse that but if you get uh, interact and intervene early, a lot of times your success is, uh, you have a higher uh, uh, chance for success in helping these people. Well, Dr. Charles, I'm wondering, uh, obviously if somebody is knocked out and so on, they get evaluated, but how do you know at an earlier age, if say you're you're hit by a soccer ball and you you continue to play or you slip on ice, your head hits the the back, um, uh, hits the ground, what what determines you know if you feel okay what determines whether you should seek help for it because obviously nobody wants to to experience the kind of things you're talking about right well uh, the first thing is to rule out the worst possible thing uh, such as a brain bleed or a fracture so you know a lot of times a ct scan of the brain would be needed or an mri which sees a finer bleed it can't see a concussion, but it can rule out pathology, such as what I talked about, or Chiari or a brain tumor. If that's clear, uh, then the exam is very important. And, and the exam, we focus on the sphenoid bone, which is the bone that the brain sits on top of. And it also, the sphenoid uh, articulates with all the other cranial bones. So how it moves directly influences the rest of the skull. And the mechanics and the physiology of a concussion because the skull is dome-shaped 
most of these forces are transferred right to the middle of the skull, which is where the sphenoid is, and it acts as a shock absorber. And so we understand the functionality of the sphenoid uh, can affect brain function. Your eye muscles attached to the sphenoid, three cranial nerves, three, four, and six that control eye muscle movement pass through foramen in the sphenoid, the, the oculomotor, trochlear, and abducens. The sphenoid houses the pituitary gland, which is the master gland. The pineal gland, which regulates serotonin secretion, is behind the pituitary, which is what's involved in PTSD. So your jaw muscles even attached to the sphenoid. So this is like Grand Central Station. So the exam tells us everything we need to know as far as functionality from the blow and the effect it could have on the brain. Then we go a little further. We understand that the blow can cause a slowdown of, of this waste removal system, the lymphatic system. The, the good thing about it is it, that's not a, an immediate thing where the brain deteriorates. It's, it's a slow, insidious process. That's why we're seeing a lot of problems with retired NFL football players because they've had a lifetime of multiple blows and there's a slow deterioration and degradation of the brain. And then you have cases like Junior Seau, who ended up killing himself, and Mike Webster, who was living in a car. So if you can intervene early and do the exam and look for these specific cranial faults, a lot of times then you can stop this from progressing uh, to a point where it's debilitating. When you get into this area with, with older adults, um, is there any difference in the presentation and the way they present if it's a concussion as a uh, if it's concussion related as opposed to uh, kind of an abnormal aging process with without a concussion? Yeah, if if it's a a a, a neurological degenerative process, no, we're, we usually can't reverse that. But if it's from trauma, then the success rate is higher. And, and we've had some older injuries. We we had a fella from. Philadelphia, who 30 years previous to uh, being seen, he was in an army and he was in a tank and a hatch fell and hit him in the head, which was 300 pounds. And now he was in his 40s when he came. He wasn't in his 70s or 80s. So we were able to help him. Um, a lot of times I have a lady now in her 80s right now. We're not, I'm, I'm not being able to help the dementia, but we've stopped the progression. Her husband has said now that she's she's stable, not getting worse. So that's kind of a win in that you stop the progression, but she, we, we also have not made her better. Uh, so there is such a thing as damage, uh, structural damage. And uh, sometimes you you don't, you, you can't tell that till you, uh, some, I guess what I'm saying, some patients need, um, managed as opposed to you can you can help them and remediate them. So, yeah, a lot of older patients, the risk is as we age, um, our ability to heal definitely is compromised because things deteriorate. So, what is the treatment for a concussion if if you can if you yeah, can the, treat and ameliorate? Yeah, the uh, this is called cranial movement therapy. Uh, I was a part of the research team that developed this. Uh, back in 1986, uh, what we did was identified uh, the articulations of the skull and, and movement. We relied on uh, some research. Uh, Michigan State University had done, uh, had quantified movement of the, of the parietal suture. Their, their department of physiology uh, re relied on uh, the space program here and in Russia. Uh, but there was not a whole 
bunch of information out there. Donald Sutherland was an osteopath who was a pioneer in this field. So most of our work was actually uh, identifying the skull, uh, its articulations, and then uh, it was a lot of trial and error. Uh, the six of us would uh, hypothesize how the skull moved and then put it into practice. And it took seven years to develop this. So what we did is identified specific cranial faults, how they affected the brain, and then how to remediate it. So we basically reestablished proper cranial bone movement. And uh, it gives the brain its best chance to uh, basically heal. I'm, I'm not crazy about the word heal, but that's essentially what happens. So uh, we improve CSF flow. We improve uh, uh, blood flow to the midbrain, eye muscle function, uh, a lot of the jaw uh, muscle because the internal and external pterygoid muscles of the jaw attach to the sphenoid. So it influences the way the sphenoid moves. I work very closely to with TMG specialists here in Pittsburgh, um, specifically ICCMO, International College of Craniomandibular Orthopedics. Uh, they do a lot of concussion work because of this relationship with the jaw muscles and the sphenoid. In fact, I spoke at their international conference in Louisville in October and uh, the the marriage between those specialists and what I do is is very beneficial because we're able to attack the problem from uh, multiple different ways. So it's a physical intervention. Physical intervention means mechanical movement or surgery or what? Uh... Mechan mechanical movement. Uh, it's it's all manual. Uh, actually, in uh, the the pterygoid processes of the sphenoid are accessed through the roof of the mouth. The greater wings are accessed here, you know, structurally, and so you—it's all manual. And uh, the exam, when the patient comes in, tells me everything. Uh, I, I, the history—we take a very complete history. The diagnostics—we—we—we we, we, most of the time patients have their diagnostics already done, and um, then the exam tells me uh, really if I can or can't help them. Uh, I have cases where you can't help them. Uh, uh, they're they're just damaged. Uh, I also have, you know, I, I had a, this is a funny story. I had a girl from Roanoke University told her mother she had a concussion and failed out her first semester freshman year because of her concussion. Mother brought her here from Virginia and I examined her. There was nothing wrong with the girl. And the mom said, you, you know, what's wrong with her? I said, yeah, she's, uh, she's uh, uh, probably partying too much. And confessed <laughs> she made the whole thing up to explain why she failed. Oh, man. Yeah. So uh, mom wasn't happy. But, you know, uh, yeah. So, uh, but now I just examined somebody last week that didn't have any of these cranial faults. And, and it, a lot of it has to do with angle of the blow and how the head absorbs uh, the trauma. You know, I have a question for you when you talk about. This, what about older people that come in that have head trauma concussions? It happens, right? The older slip, fall, car accidents, all that stuff. The yeah. Um, obviously, there's a lot of factors into decision making on how you need to treat. Uh, youth is 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 a, a very it's very powerful in healing. Young kids heal much quicker. Uh, the aging process, uh, we get compromised. We get weaker. I'll use my own mother as an, an example. She's 84. When she was uh, 79, she was visiting my nephew in Colorado. He had a dog that jumped on her. She went face first into a sidewalk, split her head open, 20 stitches. She turned, her face was just bruised. It changed her personality. Uh, she, she had constant headaches, which she didn't have before. 
Um, she she's a real level calm individual. It made her really highly agitated, um, kind of snarky. It wasn't used to seeing my mother that way, and and I I found that the pterygoid processes were dropped. She 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 was getting headaches because her eyes couldn't track. Um, and the greater wing of the sphenoid was putting a lot of pressure on the right brain, which a lot of times can trigger emotional issues. Anyway, she went through the program. And, you know, we have we she's she's back to normal again. But uh, it, it was the the emotional effect that had on her. Now I did get a hold of her right away, um, so our chances are greater. And does she take more work than somebody say younger um, and in great physical shape, like a like a college athlete or high school athlete? Yeah, but you know you you just adapt to the, the presenting patient. Well, it's encouraging to know that some, some older folks can, can really improve. Uh, I just have one other question that I'll leave for Neil, but for several decades, I was director of psychology at, at a major headache center. And uh, I'm uh, wondering, you know, what percentage, well, percentage is not uh, something uh, that you necessarily need to know, but, but in general, do, um, most of your patients wind up having headaches temporarily. Does it trigger a, a chronic process when they have concussions or is headache not necessarily part of the picture, but we saw it because, because of who, who we treated. Sure. A, a lot of, a lot of concussion patients have, because there's so many things that can trigger I mean, you can have a contra-coup injury where you're just your head's whipped violently and your brain bounces off the inside of the skull. Um, if you if your eyes aren't tracking and try to use them a lot, it can trigger a headache. If you have lack of circulation to the midbrain because of lack of oxygen, less circulation, that can cause a headache. But the 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 symptoms from head from concussions are so wide. I, I I've had people had severe concussions and have no headaches. I had a fellow had a concussion. The only thing happened is he lost his sense of taste and smell. Uh, balance problems, uh, short-term memory problems. I, I've had patients after concussions, they had anger issues where they never had them before. And in fact, I've had several who've been incarcerated due to these injuries. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, a headache is one of the more common uh, symptoms because of so many things can cause it, but, but it, it's fascinating to me when I do have a patient who had a severe concussion and they, they say, well, I have no headaches, but I can't read. I can't remember anything. My short-term memory is shot. And uh, so it can be very, it can be a la carte, very selective. It's really interesting. Uh, Isn't this amazing? I never thought of this ever. You know, we watched the movie Concussion. Uh, I'm sure you did, uh, Dr. Ron, you watched the movie Concussion and you thought there's no hope. And this, since I've been starting to work with uh, Dr. Simkovich, meaning uh, interviewing him and doing a podcast and get, as a guest on my show, I've been blown away to find out these success stories. We had someone from American Ninja Warrior on yesterday. I already heard it on my syndication that talked about the progress he made with Dr. Simkovich, where he literally w- didn't see progress for 10 years going to all these different places. Then he came from Wyoming right there. So people travel to Pittsburgh to see him so he is a a gem and dr charles the best place people can find information on you is where uh simkovich concussion institute.com and for older people it's not too late for them if they've had a head injury or they had head injuries before to see no, you my, my oldest patient was 94 isn't that that's that is that's tremendous 
the work he's doing and anything else to add, Dr. Ron? No, it's just, uh, I mean, it's been inspiring talking with you, Dr. Charles, and uh, yeah. doing tremendous work and keep it up. Thanks All for right. Dr. Ron, it was a real pleasure meeting you. All right. That was Growing Older with Enthusiasm in the Neil Haley Show. Guys, take care. One. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Rural Doc Allen podcast. I'm excited to welcome the program. Rural Doc Allen Lindemann Doc. What's going on, man? How are you? We're doing very well here, Neil, and you? I'm doing fantastic. And today's topic is rationing healthcare the insurance way. Uh, how does insurance ration healthcare? Well, again, it saves money by declining uh, visits. For example, when I went to the Mayo Clinic for a, a lecture uh, several years ago, this doctor was so happy that she said, oh, we can give a lot less uh, prenatal care and we still get the same outcomes. And I'm thinking the only way that would work is if the prenatal care were bad. Uh, they also limit the amount of days. For example, the insurance company will see that you pay $5,000 for five days. So they think, oh, well, we're going to save money by giving a four-day visit and only pay $4,000. The problem is that the next year, they pay $5,000 anyway for four days. How does insurance increase healthcare costs? Again, we have layers of administrators and we have delayed healthcare so that when the consumer actually gets care, the illness is at a more advanced stage and requires more and more expensive treatment. How does insurance prevent access to healthcare? Well, there are several different ways. One is um, by increasing premiums. That's the first way. And we haven't seen a lot of benefit from the ACA. Uh, as a matter of fact, insurance has gone from barely affordable to unaffordable for many people. A family of five can pay several thousand dollars a month for their premium, and they can each have a $5,000 deductible, so they could wind up paying just $25,000 a year in deductibles alone. What can you do about this? How can, what can we do? Well, you can certainly think about um, direct primary care. I think that's a really good idea. It's catching on. Many states don't like it. The insurance company hates it because they say, oh, uh, you're practicing insurance. You know, you're, so they don't like that. And again, I think that it's a matter of consumers joining groups. Uh, it has to be, I think, a grassroots thing uh, like the Mothers Against Drunk Driving and the anti-smoking um, packs from many years ago. All right, you can go to worlddocallen.com and also safepregnancy.com and you can purchase the book on Amazon as well. Appreciate it, Doc. Thanks a lot, Neil. All right, that was the World Doc Allen Podcast, guys. Take care. We're back to the Neil Haley Show and also the Kim Sorrell Love is Podcast. I'm excited to welcome from the host, Kim Sorrell. Kim, how are you? And I know you're excited about our guest. I'm doing great, Neil. Thank you. And I am excited to introduce Michael Scott, CEO of PureFlix. He somehow has a degree in theology and applied science and is now in the film industry and he has been for quite some time, which I find fascinating. Michael, <laughs> welcome. Welcome. Thanks for coming. Well, well, thank you. People ask me, what is the applied science? You know what that is, though? That's code for it's a degree in film. 
<laughs> so, you know, Michael, we, we talked so many times. Uh, we talked more of your story last time. We're going to jump into the, the latest things that are happening in Pure Flix. We're so excited that we can have you on for segments throughout the year, especially different times. We talked about how exciting times are in, with Pure Flix during Christmas, but now we're in the Easter season, which is unbelievable how quick time flies by and we're in another time, another season. So updates, what's going on now? Well, you know what? It's exciting time up here. Like every Easter is always excited. But before we get to Easter, I thought next week we're de- debuting the new Karen Kingsbury series, A Thousand Tomorrows. A Thousand Tomorrows. And those of you guys who don't know who Karen Kingsbury is, she's a New York Times bestselling author, sold over 25 million books. This is one of her hit books. It's a wonderful story. It's a Western kind of rodeo type thing wrapped in a love story and really how God shows up. It's an incredible series. I think people will really love it. If you know Karen, you'll love it. If you don't know Karen, I encourage you to get involved. And that will start next week. And then we'll be releasing a new episode right through the end of March, kind of leading up to Easter. I think will be fun. And then we also start our Easter lineup. We got old classics like Risen and uh, Passion of the Christ and Apostle Peter and The Last Supper, the Apostle Paul. So there's a lot of different biblical films new releases that are coming. And I think so. I think as people are starting to think about Easter, come try Pure Flix to get a free trial. And I think it's really cool. Well, there are two big things, really, because Karen Kingsbury, I think she's published over 60 books. She has. And some have become movies. And this is a fabulous one. And it deals with so many things, you know, the starting out with a father who leaves his family. Exactly. there's intense stuff in there. So many things dealt with it. How did you find that dealing with so many? You know what? I've always loved Karen. We knew we wanted to do stuff with her. And this was kind of the opportunity to do it. And we're like, we jumped on it and we thought this is perfect. Um, And um, you just look at her stories. If you read one, you're just from page one, you're enthralled in it. And I think every great movie, great television show starts with a great story. And I think that's what's so important. And for us, it's not only a great story, but does that story have faith organically weaved in it? And if it has it organically in it, it won't feel forced. It won't feel cheesy. And it'll be a hard, it'll be an impactful show that I think people will love and be entertained by. Now, Michael, let's just jump in specifically about original programming, how you guys finally took the, you know, the leap of faith. How many, like six months ago or a couple of years ago? couple yeah, years but now yeah. even more like with the movies yeah. you did first original program and now movies yeah is not newer that's newer like did you start doing it is. we've movies? been we've been really ramping up over the last couple of years doing uh like 20 movies and television shows a year and so we're releasing shows every month sometimes weekly depending on the season for people to watch and i think what people and it's it's a diverse set of content. It's not just one genre. We have comedies. We have great faith dramas. We have um, some action adventure shows. So it's it's got a little bit of everything for everybody. And I you know some of the classics I saw, uh, you know, leading up to last year, nothing is impossible. Legacy Peak Peak with uh, Lucas Black. There were some really great movies that came out, and there's more to come. And I think people will be excited about the lineup to come as well. Well, and the quality is exceptional. Everything about it is so good. And how badly do we need pure flicks in our country? Like, the- 
We're back to the Neil Haley Show and also the media giant effect. I'm the first excited to welcome to the program celebrity author, Paul Hollis, author of the Holloman series. Paul, how are you? And I know you're excited about our guest, especially an author, and you have dreams that she ended up accomplishing, writing a book and then making it into a movie. How are you, Paul? I do. I do. So I'm, I'm very curious as to uh, some of that process that you went through, Rosalind. So, but welcome to be happy to be here. All right, so Rosalind, let's talk about the story. Let's talk about the story first of all, Rosalind. What gave you the idea to write the book first of all? Well, here's the thing, you guys. I mean, I started out as a writer. I started out as a journalist, just like you guys. So, you know, back in the '80s, first I was a reporter in New York, and then I went down to Miami to be a business writer at the Miami Herald. So, for the first 15 years of my career, I was a journalist, and then I went into tech and now real estate. But I never stopped writing. And I was a huge Jane Austen Pride and Prejudice fan from the time I was 15 years old. So I read, you know, my my mom's old college copy of Pride and Prejudice uh, when I was growing up up outside of Philadelphia. And uh, I guess in my own mind there as a teenager, I always dreamed of one day going down becoming Jane Austen, right? But my life kind of took some other paths instead. And the long story short is Townhouse Confidential is a novel that I started writing, it's kind of like a parody, like a spoof of Jane Austen's Pride and Prejudice, but it was basically like for the last 20 years, I've been a New York City landlord. So you can imagine how stressful that is. And uh, so Townhouse Confidential was kind of like, you know, my alternative universe where I would take like Jane Austen's characters, like Mr. Darcy and Elizabeth Bennet, and, you know, kind of like, you know, play around with them and turn them into people who I actually knew who lived in the West Village. So, you know, Liz Perry's kind of me, like, you know, the desperate landlord going crazy with all these repairs. And, you know, then George Barrow, the Mr. Darcy character, was based on one of my tenants. And there's Tommy Leroy, the bad boy handyman, which, to be honest, could have been like practically any handyman that I've ever met. Um, So I just started like playing around with this in 2010, like, writing a few little chapters on my BlackBerry at the time and sending it to friends. And everybody thought it was hilarious, but I was never going to finish it until a pandemic came and shut down the entire planet. Right? So there I was like 2020 locked in my townhouse in West Village, nothing to do except for scramble to find more tenants to replace the people who left New York City. And all of a sudden I had time to sit down and finish this novel. Right. So I sat down, I finished it. This was like August of 2020. I uploaded it to Amazon and I thought, okay, I've checked that box. I've checked that box on my bucket list. Finished novel before dot check. <laughs> what I didn't realize was that a couple months later, as fate would have it, I jumped in a cab to head up to Penn Station to see my daughter. I have two daughters and the younger one was going to Yale Law School at the time. As fate would have it, my cab driver turned out to be an independent filmmaker. And I started talking wow. to him about Townhouse Confidential, and he fell in love with the story, and he encouraged me to turn it into a screenplay. Like, a screenplay? I have to write a screenplay? It took me 10 years to finish the novel. But long story <laughs> short, there was really not a lot going on in, like, January February 2021. So I banged out the first version of the screenplay in about a week. It afterwards went through, like, another 10 versions. So I didn't end up moving ahead with him because... You know, he was kind of like a smaller time filmmaker, but, you know, he was the one who he was the one who ignited that spark. And then a few months afterwards, I 
you know, I found Lawrence Scott, who became our producer, and he introduced me to Patrick Perez Vidaudi, our director. And uh, he goes by Ish Istvan Letang, who's our director of photography. So the long story short is, you know, I didn't know a single person in the movie business before two years ago. And now, like, here we are streaming on every platform all over the world. So it's been like an incredible journey. Um, but obviously, it wasn't just me, right? It was me. It was our incredible director, producer, our cast, our crew. Like, I mean, we were like a group of, I guess, about 50 people making this crazy movie in my townhouse and, you know, other locations like John's Pizza and Joe Coffee in the West Village. It's back in the middle of a pandemic. And, you know, looking back on it, that was like completely flat out crazy. But we did it. Well, I'm ex I'm excited for you. Doug Paul has Paul has questions for you because he yeah, has that dream. God, Paul, with some questions. Well, you filled in a lot. Uh, thank you, Rosalind. I, I'm actually a, a a kind of a big fan of New York, and and uh, I, I'd love to uh, to actually have your book under my arm and and visit some of those places and and understand sure. how, how you went through all that. Um, so yeah, no, I'm 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 excited and, and excited to see the movie as well too. So so I know those turn out really well. Um, I, I have I have a question though. Is is like, in, when you're writing a screenplay, is it just words, or do you have do you do anything with the surrounding uh, uh, environment? You know, basically, the the, the scene well, sort of thing. No, but Paul, that that's an excellent question because the first version of the screenplay. Like the novel itself, which I guess I should just go back and rewrite, you know, now that we've like, you know, like changed so much in the movie. But, um, but yeah, so the original screenplay was basically just taking the book, right, and turning it from narrative fiction, you know, into more like a play, right? You know, so even though like, you know, obviously there was some stage direction and things like that, but the long story short is um, once I, once I began to, once I began the process of converting the book to the movie, I realized like, wait a minute, it was one thing for Jane Austen to write a novel 200 plus years ago about a group of girls and, you know, their moms and, you know, chit-chatting with Mr. Darcy in the drawing room. But in today's world, that's boring. I mean, nobody's going to sit there for an hour and a half to watch people just talk. So I had to make it more exciting. So I don't want to give away, I don't want to give away any spoilers here. But let's just say that there's two pint-sized mafia guys in Townhouse Confidential, the movie, who are definitely not in the book, and for sure they are not in Jade Austen's Pride and Prejudice. So the long story short is, once like I started showing the screenplay to people, and they started giving me comments, what they call notes of the world of film, mm -hmm. all of a I realized I had to raise the stakes. Right? It couldn't just be like a couple of sisters chatting it up in a drawing room. That, that's, that's not going to be entertaining enough for people to watch in a movie. So that's a no, great exactly. So once I started asking myself, like I remember back when I was in back when I was in the newspaper business, you know, I would like you know hand in some huge you know blockbuster story to my editor at the Miami Herald. He would take one look at it and he would ask the question, "Why should anybody care? Right? Why should anybody care to read this whole sixty columnage story? Right? So it was the same process that I went through in terms of turning the book into the movie because it was clear that like wait a minute you know the movie centers around you know the the movie's a romantic comedy you know about like the fortunes and failings of you know this group of privileged white people who live in townhouses in the west village so why should anybody care about that 
especially in today's world? Well, the more people started asking me these questions, the more I realized, like, wait a minute, Liz Perry's the heroine, but she can't just like sit around waiting for Prince Charming to come save the day, right? So I started throwing all kinds of complications into her life, right? And by the end of the movie, she does learn how to stand up for herself. And that's why she gets the guy, not just because he shows up on a white horse, so to speak. The right. same thing, with George Barrow, the Mr. Darcy character, he's supposed to be like, you know, like Prince Charming with a boatload full of cash. It's like, hold on a minute. He's a real estate developer. This guy's probably in debt up to his eyeballs. So what does that mean? Oh, maybe that's where the mafia loan sharks come in. So all of a sudden, like, I started like playing around with these characters and I realized that, you know, now like it started taking some shape. Now all of a sudden, like, you know, we were like, you know, breathing some life into the story. And then I guess like for me as like the writer, just to just to bring bring in a group of actors. And these actors are like, I don't want to boast about them, but let's just say, I mean, they're either stars or soon to become big stars. You know, because they just they just yeah. turned in an awesome performance. So it wasn't just my words. It wasn't just my characters, my story, or Jane Austen's story. It was the actors and Patrick, our director, they were the ones who really breathed life into these characters and made them come alive. You know, it's interesting when you talk about the characters making it come alive and all these different things in the process. You really put certain mainstays in the West Village and put them in the film. That made you happy, right? To put those areas. Now, when you talk about mainstays, you're talking about locations. Locations, yes. Like the locations we use, like, like John's Pizza. Yes. Right. I don't know if you've ever been to John's Pizza, but no. that restaurant is it's John's and Joe's or Magnolia uh, Bakery. These ones that people right. talk about all the time, you know, that, that's what I'm saying. Like Magnolia Bakery, right? Like anybody who's a Sex and the City fan knows Magnolia Bakery. And my two daughters who are now in their early 30s, they used to work at the Magnolia Bakery. You know, in fact, just there this morning buying cupcakes for Valentine's Day. But um, yeah, these are iconic locations. And I feel very fortunate, like, fortunately, the good news is I'm in the townhouse business. So I I own eight townhouses, including my own, and I'm a landlord. So getting access to my, my own buildings wasn't hard. But I could tell you, thank God, that all these local West Village merchants came out for us in our movie. Because, like, that proved to be the toughest challenge. So, you know, John's Pizza said yes, Joe Coffee, the Little Branch. Washington Square Diner, Magdalia, we did like a big overnight shoot there. It's like, that, that's what I'm saying. I really believe that this is, it's not just a parody on Jane Austen's Pride and Prejudice. Townhouse Confidential is the most West Village, West Village movie that anybody has ever made. That's fantastic. Go, Paul. <laughs> last, last question. I Go. No, no, I don't have a question. This is amazing. I, I appreciate all of this knowledge that you're you're providing for us here, Rosalind. This is terrific. For sure. And for Rosalind, best best place people can check out the film all over the place, right? It's available it's in really like everywhere. I mean, it's honest to God streaming every place. Any place where you could stream stream a movie, it is there. So if you guys, I'm just like putting out a shameless pitch here for all of your listeners, anybody who doesn't have anything to do tonight for Valentine's Day. Or even if they have something to do, maybe after dinner, they're looking to watch a movie, check out Townhouse Confidential. Absolutely. And you have a website too, Rosalind, that people could check you yeah, out? Yeah, anybody who wants to know more, they could either go on to IMDb, 
they could go on to townhouseconfidential.com. Um, we're on Facebook, we're on Instagram, but I really want people to watch the movie because it is freaking hilarious. All right. We appreciate it, Rosalind. Thanks again. Thank you. Thank All right, you. You're listening and watching the Neil Haley show. And we'll be back in just a moment. We're back to the Neil Haley Show and also the media giant effect. And I'm excited to highlight this author. And I'm excited to welcome Nancy Perpal to the program. She is an author and an attorney. Uh, Nancy, thanks for stopping by. And I want you to talk specifically how, how why you decided to become a writer. You know, you've done all these things in your career and then writing became something you wanted to do. A fiction writer also, you know, that's that's a challenge. Yeah. Yes, that is a challenge. Well, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. And I've enjoyed your show. I watch you often. Um, I I was um, a divorce attorney for over 30 years and I'm retired now. Um, And I just, I spent all of that time taking apart marriages. And in my retirement, I want to try to keep them together and through writing. Um, through writing novels, um, Around Which All Things Bend is a relationship novel. It has a lot of advice, you know, tucked in between the plots and the twists and a lot of dialogue. Um, it's getting very good reviews on Amazon. And um, it, it shows the pathway and the kinds of things you should consider when you're thinking about aligning and doing a permanent long-term, hopefully, relationship with someone, the questions you should ask and why you should ask them. And that's actually in the book. Um, It's an unusual concept, which is why I did not do it traditionally. Everybody wants you to do what they want you to do when you do traditional publishing. And I wanted to do this the way I felt it would be best. It's been exceptionally well-received. That's tremendous. Now let's talk about, you know, what you saw as a divorce attorney, the mistakes that couples made that did break up before really having a chance to work on things. What were the things you're saying? Why is it happening? Serious things, you know, because as a divorce attorney, you knew some marriages had to have divorces, but some just didn't. Right. And that's what your passion is to try to bring marriages back. You're exceptionally insightful because that's what I felt so many times. Now, infidelity is a deal breaker for most people. Um, I mean, a one night stand, maybe you can get over it, but the long-term emotional infidelity and physical infidelity. um, When I first started practicing law 30 years ago, that was the number one reason why people were getting divorced. Um, People stayed in relationships for economic reasons, for children. There were rules, there were religions, there were expectations, there were obligations that people acknowledged and tried to live by. Um, Today, it's a matter of choice. It's a matter of love. If you no longer think you're in love with this person, then you're no longer interested in them. And when you stop being interested... Hi, and welcome to Women CEO and Reflection a podcast dedicated to personal growth and mental health discussions with women CEOs across the globe. It's here where inspired women get candid about what drives them to succeed and the personal challenges they've encountered on their path to success. So if you're a woman on a mission, this is the podcast you don't want to miss. So sit back, relax, and let's get candid. Hi, and welcome to Women CEO and Reflection. I'm your host, Marisa Jones, and I'm joined by my co-host, Neil Haley. 
Today's guest is Carolyn Parent. She's the CEO of Conveyor, an organization that converts product instructions into digital assets that drive revenue. Carolyn is a technology operating executive with 25 years of CEO, CRO, and board member experience in successfully launching, scaling, leading, and transforming companies. A passionate results-driven leader, Carolyn has built high-performance teams and grown organizations to achieve their highest levels of success. Carolyn has led companies at the forefront of SaaS technology innovation in real-time digital communications, mobile AI, and data and security analytics. Welcome to the show, Carolyn. Thank you. So I'm so glad you're here. I always love talking to other women leaders who are in the tech space because of my background, you know, 30 years in tech. Um, and, and now we get to focus on technology and mental health, two of my favorite things to talk about. Um, so tell me a little bit about kind of your, your journey and how you wound up to being the CEO of Conveyor. Sure. Well, thank you for having me. I'm thrilled to be here and to uh, and to get a chance to chat with you. So my uh, my grandfather was a first generation salesperson, and my father uh, and he became, grew up to be a CEO. And my father started out in sales and became a CEO. And I kind of was just born into a sales culture family um, and moved up to management over time. So we we always uh, were going up. Other people were talking about lacrosse and soccer around the table when we were in the sixth and eighth and ninth grade, and we had you know visiting salesmen talking about deals, you know, deals and how to close business. So we've just, you know, kind of in my family and uh, knew right from the start that I wanted to go into sales and into business management, just because that's kind of what everybody in my family just did. My brother was in sales and he's a CEO. So just kind of what we did. You know, I think it's really important what you said, like you talked about that stuff as a child. Not many parents do that, right? They might talk with each other, but not get the children engaged. Um, and we learn and, and do what our parents do, you know, that's, that's how we learn from each other. Um, so from that perspective, you know, your parents were almost your mentors, your family was, was your mentors. Um, who do you, who do you see as your mentors today? Who do you count on to make sure that you can bounce ideas off of and, and, um, you know, talk strategy. So this person, but since I've known him since we were eight and we were always friends, I really didn't have that. And I really felt that my life was over right along with his. I was still alive, but it felt like a whole different life. And I felt very raw. Um, you know, we didn't have children. And uh, in retrospect, I'm grateful that we didn't have children because I think that would have been an even more horrific uh, journey for me at the time. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Feel, Deal, and Heal, Reinventing Yourself After Loss with our host, Dr. Mary. Dr. Mary, how are you? And thanks again, as I'm excited about another great episode. Yes, I'm doing great, Neil. Thank you. And I am excited to be here again for our, another episode. And so I appreciate you. And I absolutely want to help every, have everyone to help me to welcome our guest, Jennifer Way. Jennifer is a national speaker, author, and consulting, consultant on hiring top talent, career management, and developing leadership. So welcome, Jennifer. Thank you. Thank you so much. So, so Jennifer, as, as you know, um, we have uh, the, what we're doing is talking to, to various guests about 
loss, grief and loss that they've experienced. So let's start out with um, you briefly telling us about a significant loss that you have experienced. Well, my most significant loss that I've experienced was the loss of my late husband uh, back in 2018. Uh, we met when, well, the first day of camp, we were eight years old, actually, and uh, we're friends all of our lives and spent uh, 20 years as a couple. So in, in terms of the loss and how did you deal with that loss? How, how did you how did you navigate it? Well, I was running my business full-time and I was his full-time caregiver. So there was a lot of juggling. I mean, it was uh, very hard for many years before he actually passed away. And once he did pass away, you know, I knew that that life was over instantly. I mean, that was the end of that. I knew it. I felt like my marriage had been fulfilled as another uh, widow I heard refer to it. I felt that instantly. Um, I knew that I could not allow myself to ask why. Mm -hmm. uh, we were very, very blessed, but certainly not entitled to that life we had that was beautiful. And I loved that life. Mm -hmm. um, we were super happy. Mm -hmm. uh, and it was over. And, you know, I guess the whole not ask why, I mean, they would have never been enough. It didn't matter if it was 20 years or a hundred, there would have been never enough. So I just set that question down right off the bat. And that's kind of how I started mm -hmm. my grieving process. Um, the best advice I got uh, was to tell the truth of every moment. And boy, did that turn out to be the very, very wisest uh, piece of advice, certainly that I received at that time. I did some heavy grieving. I threw myself into therapy right away. I hired three grief therapists nearly immediately mm -hmm. uh, and started working right away. Mm -hmm. um, you know, some are better than others. And so I could just navigate who I thought was the best, but I knew that I needed to work on it and I knew I needed to work right away. And that's kind of how I, how I dealt with that. How long did you go through therapy? Um, I was probably in therapy a good year, maybe a little bit more than a year, actually. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, everyone is lovely and tries to bring comfort, but what I learned was that there is no comfort in grief. And the best comfort I found was with people who knew that there is no real comfort. They could just be with me in that grief. And therapy for me was about arming myself with tools that I could use to navigate so much of the renegotiation of relationships because all of my relationships were renegotiating. All of my priorities were renegotiated. Mm -hmm. All of how I spent time, energy, um, all of it. Uh, you know, it's a, it's a whole new life the second that my husband died. And you so know, I had a lot to, to navigate with that. You really did. And, and you've, you've said something, I want to back up. You've said something that, that, that really struck me because a lot of times I don't hear people take the particular perspective is that I knew it was over. It was, it was over. And so I was able to, I didn't take myself through asking those questions, why, why, or whatever, but it was over. Can you talk and expound on that? I've, I'd love to hear more about that perspective. Well, just in that moment, it was my first instinct. I mean, 
I think for most people, they have a, a, a time in their life that's pre-spouse, mm-hmm. you know, that they had a whole, some sort of adulthood without this person. But since I've known him since we were eight and we were always friends, I really didn't have that. And I really felt that my life was over right along with his. I was still alive, but it felt like a whole different life. And I felt very raw. Um, you know, we didn't have children. And uh, in retrospect, I'm grateful that we didn't have children because I think that would have been an even more horrific uh, journey for me at the time. But so, so what that meant was the worst thing that could ever happen to me did. Mm-hmm. And once the worst thing that could ever happen to you happens, well, I, I mean, I would say that I became kind of dangerous. I mean, there was no consequence. What are you going to do to me? There's nothing worse that could that could ever happen to me that didn't just already happen. So there was a complete and total freedom in some ways, great. And in some ways, terrible I mean, freedom from that. Very fascinating. Tell me, how did people respond to your reaction to your husband's death? Uh, that was a mixed bag. <laughs> my my <laughs> therapist warned me. Uh, she said something to me so profound. She said, you are someone who is hyper present with your circumstance. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I thought, oh, that feels real true. But I didn't know quite what she meant. I'd never heard anyone say that before. And what she meant was, well, she gave me an example. And mm-hmm. she noticed that I was no longer wearing a re- my wedding ring. Mm-hmm. And she's like, and it, this was very early. I mean, we're talking like week two, maybe. Oh my. Yeah. Okay. And she said, you are not, I noticed you're not wearing a wedding ring. I said, I'm not. And she said, let me take a stat. Has anybody noticed? I said, oh, oh, people have noticed. I mean, they have all kinds of reactions to that. Mm-hmm. And she said, may I take a stab at why you're not wearing the ring? And I said, sure. She said, could it be because you're just not married? And I said, that is exactly why I am no longer married. And for me and for my healing, and I don't say this for anyone else, mm-hmm. I would be very cautious. I certainly would never want to wound anyone uh, in the grieving process. But for me, part of my healing was aligning to the fact. And it's a fact. Yes. I am not married. Oh, yeah. Now, what that means to me is my love did not end. Right. But my marriage did. Very interesting. That life did. And documentary, yeah. when you see documentary, when people uh, and start anew, how much of a challenge is that, documentary, to start anew, especially when you're used to the same thing over and over, same life, same routine, and then it all stops suddenly. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, I, I, when, I, when I hear as I hear Jennifer talking about this, it really does open up another way of showing how people grieve very differently. The The common perception is that people, everybody grieves the same. You go in and you you, you do ABC, you go through these little stages, and then eventually you're, you're done with that. And preferably you're done sooner than later. And so this is the first time I have heard this particular perspective that Jennifer brings. And I am very, very fascinated hearing that because I know when I lost my husband, it, it just took, I, I wasn't ready. I mean, probably I didn't take, well, I didn't take my wedding ring off. It was probably a year because 
on you know in in my way i kept thinking to myself i'm still married i'm you know i'm still married but to hear jennifer say you know i was no longer married it didn't stop the love my love didn't end but i was no longer married and so i'm just thinking that in a way that does help to lighten the grief it, it minimizes it seems to that it would minimize that pain and suffering that you would otherwise be taking yourself through why 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 and why is this happening so i i, I really do i i, I am just I, I i'm fascinated by you well i mean for me i was afraid of denial mm -hmm. you know for me grief 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 is the most powerful the most consuming yeah the most profoundly altering force i have ever ever come across in my life it was so consuming hi everyone and welcome to the mike velardi show i'm excited to welcome to the program mike velardi mike what's going on man how are you hey great how are you good 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 and who's our guest today tim tim bonaparte my podcast partner tim welcome to the show thank you gentlemen good to see you both again how's everything fantastic Good, good. Did you guys survive the uh, MasterCard shutdown yesterday? Do you know about that? No, tell us about it. All right. Went to the store, uh, standing in line. Nobody's card was working. People were, you know, carts full of groceries. And the lady kept saying, if you're using a MasterCard, it's not going to work. Sure enough, I put my MasterCard in. Nope, doesn't work. Declined. And I had plenty of credit left. I used my other cards and it went through fine. MasterCard had a global blackout for two hours yesterday. Oh, man. So nobody knows what happened. And it's um, all of a sudden it's hush hush on the internet. But yeah, I witnessed a whole Walmart not be able to use their MasterCard yesterday. So something's going on. That, oh, my. I, that's why I always carry cash. No matter what happens, I have $500 in my wallet. So cash is worth nothing, Mike. <laughs> Yeah, the the, I was about to say the fiat dollar is is almost done there, buddy. It's it soon. It soon won't be worth anything, man. Trust oh. me. <laughs> it's all going crypto. Digital. No, no, it's not. It, yeah, right. If if it goes crypto, that's a big mistake at this point. But at one point, it's going. To, we're going to need to have that type of a situation. But a dollar will be worthless in the United States, and you'll have to use something else unbelievable that that's what I, okay so mike what do you want to talk to, to reverend tim about today well you know i i gotta i just gotta i this is a quote from G, president biden and and i just want to get your comment on this this is what he said yesterday president biden has accused house republicans investigating his disgraced son hunter of trying to make up things about my family and claim that voters just won't be interested in the probes. In, the, in an interview with PBS NewsHour, Biden was asked how he planned to deal with the House Oversight Committee investigation into his son's shady business interest in China and Ukraine. The public is not going to pay attention to that, Biden insisted. They want these guys to do something. If the only thing they do is make up things about my family, it's not going to go very far. What do you guys think about that? 